Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Today on Off the Grid, Dr. Blake Williamson invites Toronto-based ophthalmologist Dr. Ray Stein to speak on his extensive experience with a new trifocal IOL technology. The Panoptics Presbyopia Correcting IOL was first approved by the FDA last year and is the first and only trifocal lens approved in the United States. Listen as Dr. Stein shares surgical pearls for U.S.-based surgeons who are acclimating to this new technology. Coming up on Off the Grid. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diametrix, supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 Iris Speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diamatrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com to learn more or request a sample. Hello everyone, Gary Wirtz here. Before we begin this episode, I want to share a quick message with our listeners about what you can expect in future episodes of this podcast. Ophthalmology Off the Grid has had great success highlighting physician stories and experiences. We love getting to know our guests beyond the OR and clinic and learning about the path that got them to where they are today. Over the past few months, my co-host Blake Williamson and I took some time to focus our episodes on the COVID-19 pandemic, but now we're going to shift the focus back to personal themes. It's likely that stories related to the pandemic will come up in our future episodes, but for more focused content on returning to practice, be sure to subscribe to CRST The Podcast, which will feature a mini-series titled Back to Practice. The podcast mini-series will explore topics such as patient and staff safety protocols, patient co-management and referrals, and premium technology in the COVID era. Be sure to tune in. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And we got a fantastic podcast for you today. I'm very, very excited about not only the topic, but especially the guest. Just this past year, a few months ago, um, Alcon released the the first and only uh, trifocal uh, presbyopia correcting IOL here in the United States. And it's been something that, uh, that many refractive cataract surgeons from coast to coast have been very excited about. Uh, the early outcomes uh, have been terrific from the majority of, of surgeons I talk to. Certainly, my own outcomes have been good, and the FDA trial uh, also was very promising. We're all searching for that perfect presbyopia correcting IOL, um, and there's actually a lot of good options on the market today, but, but Alcon has come through with the first trifocal that we have here in the United States. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I was trying to figure out where do I position it and what types of patients would, would best, you know, would most benefit from this and what are the pluses and minuses of the lens. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the trade journals and a lot of people I was talking to were U.S.-based surgeons who've, you know, only put in a handful. Um, and I said, well, this has been out, you know, OUS and in Canada and in Europe for a long time. Wouldn't it be cool if I tracked down 
the number one volume in planter on planet Earth. If I could somehow find the guy or gal who has put in more panoptics, literally, than anybody on the planet, I'd like to track them down and have a conversation. And that's what we did today. I'm very happy to bring in our guest today, the one and only Dr. Ray Stein from the Bachner Eye Institute in Toronto. Ray, how are you? Oh, thank you very much for the kind invitation on a, a really hot topic uh, that I'm really quite passionate about. Uh, I'm not a consultant uh, for Alcon or any other company. Uh, I've been involved with refractive surgery over the past 30 years, and the technology that I use in different areas of my practice are ones that uh, allows me to get a very, very high patient satisfaction uh, with very limited chair time postoperatively. Um, so very happy patient. So I'm happy to speak on panoptics today. Thanks, Ray. I appreciate it. And, you know, I, I, uh, I thought it was really cool telling that, you know, the, the surgeon that's done more of these than anybody on earth uh, isn't even an Alcon consultant. Uh, uh, that was refreshing to, to, to kind of hear uh, or, or learn. And, uh, you know, I think many people know you. You've won several awards uh, from the AAO and even the Innovators Award from Asperis and You've done over 200,000 eye procedures. So people, especially refractive surgeons, know who you are. I've had a chance to meet you a couple times at, at various uh, Refractive Surgery Alliance uh, meetings. But, but uh, if, for those that don't know you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you practice, where you trained, and, and kind of what your current practice is like now? I um, uh, did my medical training at uh, University of Toronto. Then I went on to do an ophthalmology residency at the Mayo Clinic. And then I did a cornea uh, external disease fellowship uh, with Peter Labson at Will's Eye Hospital. And basically, I've been back in practice now for the last 30 years. Uh, my practice is mostly refractive. I got involved with laser vision correction in the early days in 1991 and have a very active uh, cataract and uh, refractive lens exchange practice along with implantable contact lenses and, um, and the treatment of keratoconus with cross-linking and topography-guided PRK. So many, uh, a variety of different procedures, um, very exciting technology that's continued to advance. Um, but one of our biggest areas of growth in the last few years has been the presbyopic IOLs, both for cataract surgery and refractive lens exchange. And what we're finding is a significant number of patients coming in in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s. They're typically low hyperopes. They never used to wear glasses. And the first thing that went was their reading ability. And now their distance is getting blurrier and blurrier. And these patients are very, very motivated. Uh, to do something. Certainly, we could offer laser vision correction with monovision or just give them the best distance vision and have a pair of reading glasses. But almost everybody today wants to be able to see their cell phone, see their computer, and drive comfortably at night. And the presbyopic IOLs in the form of the trifocal lens uh, has made a huge difference in our practice. In fact, I've been involved with the panoptics for the past year and a half. But the past three or four months, over 80% of the lens implants we're implanting are the trifocal lens. And we have, we, have, we have no hard sell in our office. We just share patients with the, uh, the concept of either getting the best distance vision 
or to try to get the full range of vision. And most patients today are choosing that full range of vision. Yeah, right. So that, that's great. I, I think, um, you know, obviously with the volume that you do, um, you know, certainly you have a unique uh, uh, setup and unique surgical practice. Can you walk us through what, what your typical surgical week is like? Do you operate two days a week or three days a week? And how many cases are you usually doing? And of those, how many are panoptics? I'm trying to understand what you're what sure. you're. I do have a, a relatively unique surgical practice in that uh, I put in a five-day week, but four days of the week I'm in the operating room. And uh, two days I'm doing cataract or refractive lens exchange, and two days a week I'm doing uh, eczema laser treatments with PRK or SMILE. And for um, cataract or lens exchange, we're doing around 50 cases a week. Um, and I would say that now it's pretty close to um, 80% of those uh, implants are the trifocal implant uh, from Alcon. And it's, it's interesting because the whole point of, of, of finding you is because, you know, people who do a large volume, I also do a large volume of cataract surgery. I'll sometimes do, you know, 30 to 40 cases in, in one day. And when you start doing that that high of volume, especially with advanced IOLs, you start to learn all kinds of you know things that you might not otherwise learn if you're just doing you know one of these lenses per week. So I'm kind of curious, you know, with, with the panoptics, you know, when did you place your first one, and 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 what kind of uh, of cases did you choose, and and sort of what was your early experience? Were you surprised by anything? Um, we started about a year and a half ago and started very, very slowly uh, with the panoptics. I've been involved in so many presbyopic IOLs over the years, and including Restore Plus 4 and Tetrafix and Crystal Lens and Restore Plus 3 and Plus 250 and the Technus Multifocal and the M Plus and the Symphony and the Fine Vision. And there were some positive features about many of these lenses and some negatives. Um, but we started slowly, and I, I never believe um, things that I hear or that I read. I, I need to start very slowly with safe technology and make sure the patients are doing as well as I think that they're going to do. Um, we chose um, some patients uh, for refractive lens exchange that were relatively low hyperopes to give them distance and reading, and we treated um, cataract patients uh, that definitely had uh, clear corneas, uh, no irregular astigmatism, and OCT evaluation showed no evidence of an epiretinal membrane or macular degeneration. So basically, these patients uh, have healthy eyes, and the cataract patients obviously just have lens opacities, but nothing else going on. Yeah, I think it's a good pearl there that you just shared. If you're kind of trying to pick your first few cases, really with every presbyopia lens that I've used just about, but especially with this one, you know, choose your low hyperopes, uh, choose patients that have, you know, a pretty, pretty relatively dense cataract where, you know, they're going to be happy no matter what you do. So I think that makes, makes good sense. Ray, is there mm -hmm. anything that really stood out to you? Uh, you mentioned all the other presbyopia correcting IOLs you've been a part of. Is there something about panoptics that kind of stands out or is different than, say, other uh, the other lenses that you've tried? That's something that you really like about this panoptics trifocal. I had um, required a lot of chair time with uh, many of the other multifocal implants, uh, whether they didn't have satisfactory reading vision the first few days out 
or they had a higher chance of uh, glare and halos at night. So I used to see these patients um, on a frequent basis post-op, uh, but the panoptics has changed this all for me. Um, most patients are delighted on the first day post-op. Uh, they're able to read their phone, they're able to read the computer, and for me, J1 is not important. If the patients are able to see J3, uh, they're usually just delighted. However, you know, many patients with panoptics see better than that. Uh, but I get very, very few complaints um, in terms of glare and halos at nighttime with proper patient selection. And one of the one of the important things that we uh, that we learned and we've learned this, uh, you know, with other lenses as well is angle kappa is important. If the patient has a very high uh, positive angle kappa where their line of fixation is closer to the nose, it's very difficult to position this lens on the line of sight. So basically the center of the lens is decentered relative to the line of sight, and these patients have a higher incidence of glare and halos. So the number that uh, we tend to use is about 0.5 millimeters. If patients have under 0.5 millimeters, then they usually have very good quality of vision uh, during the day and night. Um, between 0.5 and 0.6, there's a little higher chance of some glare and halos, uh, and certainly over 0.6, a much higher incidence. Uh, so for me in my practice, it's generally an absolute contraindication over 0.6, and 0.5 to 0.6, um, we counsel the patients, um, but we're very careful. We, we have, uh, as you probably do too, we, we administer a questionnaire before we see the patient and we ask a variety of questions. And, you know, one is, would you tolerate some glare or halos at night if it occurred? Um, how much driving do they do during the day and night? And how they would rate their personality from an easygoing uh, to a perfectionist scale. And so someone who rates their personality as a perfectionist um, that does a lot of driving at night, I probably wouldn't select this as an ideal candidate uh, for panoptics. Um, but in general, we're seeing that 80% or more patients seem to follow into the good category um, of, uh, for patient selection. So, Ray, one of the things that you talked about was trying to select patients based off their angle kappa. Um, I'm curious what device you're using to measure that, whether it's an OPD or, or something else. Are you doing anything surgically to kind of account for that? I know some surgeons will actually nudge the, the IOL so the center button is a little bit more nasal. Uh, do you ever do anything like that or modify your surgical technique based off that? And what are you using to, to assess the angle kappa? Uh, these are very good questions. We use the OPD, although there are a variety of instruments that allow you to detect angle kappa. Um, you know, by far and away, the myopic patient has a, um, a low angle kappa. Uh, it's usually the high hyperopes that have the positive angle kappa that is high. And so we do an OPD evaluation on, on each patient, and that helps us with the counseling uh, tremendously because sometimes we see patients with uh, plus six diopter hyperopes that have a very high angle kappa, and we don't recommend a trifocal lens in these patients. Um, but at the time of surgery, I spend a lot of time at the very end of the case to try to move the optic 
into the line of sight. I have a Mastel ring uh, with a red fixation light that the patient looks at. Uh, however, you don't really need this. You can have the patient look at the microscope light. Sometimes there are two lights, sometimes there are three lights, and you have the patient look in between those lights, and that's extremely helpful. And most of the time, uh, you can nudge the implant uh, to the line of sight. Very important surgically is make sure that you take all the viscoelastic out uh, from behind the lens. Uh, otherwise, the viscoelastic can come out after and shift the lens. And then we tap down on the implant uh, to make sure it's secure. And uh, to our surprise, and this was a big surprise for me, that the lens, uh, wherever I left it at the time of surgery, it tends to be in that same position uh, postoperatively. So that was a really nice feature with this trifocal lens. I think that's a really good tip. You know, a lot of times people think about taking out the posterior viscoelastic with toric IOLs, but, you know, it makes sense to do the same thing with your presbyopia correcting IOLs, especially if you're trying to, you know, line them up on the coaxial light using the Purkinje. So I think that's a really good tip. Ray, many of the surgeons that listen to this podcast are here in the United States, and they may have had more experience with the Restore 3 ad and Restore 2.5 active focus from Alcon. Do you have any uh, experience with those? Is, is there anything that really stands out about this panoptics lens versus those other two lenses that they may have more experience with? You know, to our surprise, the quality of distance vision and the, is excellent. And in my mind uh, and experience, uh, better with the trifocal lens. Um, they seem to have better intermediate vision and they seem to have very good uh, close vision. Uh, so quality of vision, uh, low incidence of night glare or halos, and more of the full range of vision has been very positive uh, compared to some of the other lenses, uh, like those Restore lenses that we used in the past. Yeah, it's interesting. The Restore 2.5 Active Focus, the central button was supposed to be dedicated all to distance. But like you, I've found that this uh, that this lens has every bit as good as uh, of distance vision as that lens did. Here to stay with the yellow version or the clear version, which one do you prefer? And, and also, do you have any concerns about glistening, things like that, long term? In Canada, we just have the, uh, the yellow tint. Um, I would welcome a clear lens. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that the yellow tint is really necessary. Um, so uh, hopefully down the road we'll have uh, access to that technology. Uh, certainly we were concerned about glistenings before uh, with other Alcon lenses. And Alcon did make some manufacturing change and the lens uh, has a lower incidence of glistenings. Uh, but it's not 100% reduced. So, you know, there's always that concern uh, long-term of some glistenings. But even the patients that I treated with the Restore lens that, that, you know, many years ago when we started, and some of them for sure had significant glistenings, um, it was very rare for those glistenings to interfere with the quality of vision. Yeah, so those patients are, are still very, very happy. Ray, you talked about sort of starting slow, uh, and I like what you said. Anytime you're evaluating a new technology, uh, you're going to not just believe what you read or hear. You do it for yourself, which I think everyone listening to this podcast uh, uh, hopefully uh, feels the same way about adopting new technology. But you kind of start slow, and you put it in the right kind of patient. What about at this point? I mean, you've literally done more of these than anybody in the world, over a thousand, I assume. Are, are there mm -hmm. some 
where you feel more comfortable now that perhaps you wouldn't before? Because we're always talking about at these meetings, well, can you put it in post RK if, if, if the topography looks good and post, uh, post you know, hyperopic or myopic laser? Are these technologies that you're putting there or being that you're in Canada and you might have access to other lenses, are you, are you using other lenses in those scenarios? Uh, those are good questions. Um, we, I have a very active eczema laser practice over the past 30 years. So we have many patients that I operated on when they were in their 20s and 30s. And now, you know, 20, 30 years later, um, uh, they're interested in improving their sight further. And so we see uh, patients that we did LASIK or PRK on uh, that are coming in and asking about reading or they're that group is coming in because they've developed cataracts. And uh, almost in 100% of these cases, they're very interested in gaining both the distance and the reading vision. These patients are tremendously motivated. They were interested years ago in improving their distance, and now they want the full range of vision. And we've been very successful in treating these patients uh, with the trifocal lens. Um, one of the caveats is that we always ask them what the quality of vision is, you know, certainly before they develop any cataracts, um, post-LASIK or PRK, what is the quality of vision like at nighttime? Uh, if it's raining, if it's snowing, if the leaves are falling, uh, can they see well? And if they have a very good quality of vision from their previous LASIK or PRK at nighttime, then I feel very comfortable going ahead with the trifocal lens. Yes, there are a variety of measurements. You can measure higher order aberrations, but the most effective means of uh, patient selection we found is just to ask patients what their vision is like at nighttime. And if they're doing well, then we do well with the trifocal lens. And a, a very high percentage of the patients that uh, we did previous refractive on uh, are opting for trifocal lenses and are doing very, very well. Very cool. And, and sort of the, the, the reverse to that question is, you know, now that you've had so much experience, are there some clinical scenarios which you thought it would be a slam dunk and maybe it's not so much and maybe you're trying to use a different a different IOL or, or not a presbyopia IOL at all? We, you know, we thought initially that the RK patients would probably not be great candidates for a trifocal lens. And I would say the vast majority are not because a lot of them have starbursts at nighttime, and I don't, certainly don't want to increase that uh, for them. But there are different situations. Everyone's a little different. Uh, some patients don't do any driving at night or even during the day, and those patients could actually have a trifocal lens even though that they have some starbursts uh, at nighttime. Yeah, so I think that that kind of that kind of hits on you know you, you need to you need to talk to the patients. It's not all about just taking measurements. You need to understand how they're using their eyes, how they want to use their eyes after surgery as well. So Ray, you mentioned that that the majority of presbyopia lenses that you're using is panoptics, but are are, are you using any other presbyopia IOLs? Um, and, and if so, kind of what what types of patients are getting those those lenses? I'm not using any other. Uh, presbyopic IOLs. I certainly put in, you know, a, probably a few thousand symphony lenses and certainly like the material of the Technus platform. Um, but we found that uh, many patients didn't have satisfactory reading vision. And if we left one eye slightly myopic, 
yes, they could read better, but there was a higher incidence of aberrations at nighttime. And so if patients are not a good candidate for a trifocal lens, then I will go with a, a monofocal lens, uh, often a toric lens, um, if they have about 0.75 diopters of astigmatism or greater. Okay, great. Yeah, so I think, you know, I, I'm still doing a, 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 a good number of symphonies. I really like the, the flat defocus curve and that it's a little bit more forgiving. And so I have several clinical scenarios that I use it in, but I'm with you, especially for the low myopes. I've found that uh, panoptics is, is you know, just uh, superior for near vision. And another opportunity would be kind of mixing and matching. Uh, if you are going to use a symphony lens with a more traditional multifocal like their ZK or ZL. I should just bring up um, one kind of interesting scenario. We, we have many patients that had a monofocal lens in one eye that come in uh, with a second cataract in their other eye. And we do talk about uh, the trifocal lens with them. Uh, certainly, we didn't do this when we started the trifocal lens, but we learned pretty quickly that it can be very successful in this scenario uh, in allowing uh, both eyes to have good distance vision and one eye to have good reading vision. Um, so uh, this is another option that's very reasonable. Yeah, I've done that routinely. And, I, and one of the things I like about that scenario is you, you have the opportunity to kind of undersell the patient on the front end because you say, hey, listen, you know, you, you'll, this is going to give you depth of focus and you'll have some reduced freedom from glasses, but maybe not complete freedom because remember, you only have this in one eye. And lo and behold, you do the panoptics uh, and, and the next thing you know, they're, they're J1, J2, and they're not using readers at all. So um, I think great opportunity to sort of over deliver with this high number that you've done talk. I mean, not everybody's going to be happy. If you do enough surgery like you and I do, um, you know, you're going to run into some unhappy people. Um, you're going to have to do some touch-ups. You may have to do an explant here and there. Um, can you talk about some of the early signs of dissatisfaction uh, with this lens? And, and if you kind of maybe some signs at cutting for a lens exchange and if, if there's anything that we can do as surgeons besides, you know, preoperative testing and, and, and counseling, anything that we can do to sort of reduce the chances of having to do uh, a lens exchange? Yeah. Well, over the last year and a half, I haven't had to do one lens exchange with the trifocal implant. So um, I've been very, very pleased about that. But I try my best to make the patient happy and to try to identify why they have some complaints if they have some. And obviously, if someone has a loss of best corrected acuity, it's imperative that you do an OCT to rule out cystoid macular edema. It can be very subtle. Patients can have 20-25 vision and can have significant cystoid and have a decrease in their intermediate vision. Uh, so OCT evaluation is critical. Uh, if the patient has a, even a mild or moderate capsule fibrosis, that can knock the quality of vision down, uh, give them some glare or halo. Um, you know, you obviously have to be careful with doing a, a capsulotomy because doing a, a lens exchange after uh, is, uh, you know, potentially uh, complicated. Uh, but so far uh, in the capsulotomies that I've done in the right patients, um, we haven't seen anybody that didn't improve. Uh, that required a lens exchange, which would have been more complicated. And I think if you're going to get involved in premium IOLs, you need to be able to refine the refractive outcome. Uh, whether you do this yourself or you partner with a refractive surgeon, 
Um, but we found that a patient certainly have a doctor of residual astigmatism or plus uh, 0.75 on their sphere, they may not be delighted. Uh, they uh, may have more aberrations. They may not be able to read as well. And so usually three months post-op when the refractive error is stable, uh, we will offer either PRK or LASIK uh, with a very high incidence of very happy patients afterwards. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. You can get them all the way to the five yard line, but you got to get them into the end zone. It's it's the difference between it's a difference between someone being twenty happy and someone being twenty heck yes. You know, because it's you know twenty ecstatic is very different from twenty happy. So I think that the ability to touch up even small amounts of residual refractive error, um, you know, really is, is key. What about what about that patient that comes in? You do their first eye, and they're mostly happy. But they kind of talk about, oh, you know, um, I feel a little bit off balance and you know, I don't know about this other eye. And you're thinking, well, it's probably because you still have the cataract in the other eye. We need to go ahead and do the other eye. How do you handle that conversation? And, and have you had a patient like that that says, wait, I want to, you know, hold off for a while until the lens heals when you know that all they really need is just to have the same lens technology in both eyes? Well, you bring up a good point, and there's certainly patients like that where they're really off balance with two different uh, levels of vision, and we certainly don't want to ever push anybody into surgery, but we certainly encourage them to have the second eye done, and uh, most of the time, with time, um, the patient will come back, have their second eye done, and they're very happy. just want to bring up one other uh, point, and that is uh, ocular surface. Uh, yeah. disease. Now, we don't see a lot of patients uh, for refractive lens exchange or cataract surgery that have uh, significant ocular surface disease that makes us concerned. Um, but it's not uncommon postoperatively as a reaction to maybe the betadine reaction to preservatives and the medication that we give patients that they do develop some toxicity and uh, a punctate keratitis and the quality of vision goes down. So we are very aggressive with um, preservative-free lubricating drops, um, you know, post-op, and uh, and sometimes it takes a number of months uh, for the best quality vision to be achieved in that small percentage of patients that may be symptomatic. And sometimes we just need to encourage them, and um, we'll often do if they have meibomian gland uh, problems, we'll often do the uh, lipoflow procedure free of charge for the patient. Uh, if they have a mild residual refractive error, I will pay for their glasses. Uh, I will encourage them to get a pair of glasses to help them maybe with nighttime vision, and they will um, send me their uh, receipt and I'll reimburse them. And all these goodwill things are, are really helpful for patient management. I think that's a fantastic point, and, and the surgeons who may hear this may say, gosh, you know, I don't want to be buying patients' glasses, but the reality is, I bet you the percentage that you have to do that for is actually extremely small. It's very rare. Yeah, exactly, but but being able to do that and really um, uh, you know, make sure that you control their experience and keep them happy is great, and, and, and also waiting a few months before you have to do a touch-up or, uh, or, or otherwise, we always tell patients, you know, it took a long time for your vision to get this bad. It's going to take a little while for it to get a little better, you know, and they seem to 
understand that. So we've talked a lot about how this how this lens fits into your practice and what your experiences have been. I'm kind of just curious to pick your brain on the future. What what well, I mean, I, I don't think that we're going to be doing you know trifocal or any type of multifocal lens necessarily. You know, 50 years from now, uh, are, are there lenses on the horizon? Uh, and not necessarily certain types of lenses, but at least uh, using certain mechanisms for presbyopia correction that you're looking forward to, to, to using. I'm wondering you know, where you see presbyopia correcting IOLs going in the future. Well, it, it would be nice if we had a uh, lens that would be super easy to take out if the patient wasn't happy, although I haven't had you know any experience like that with the trifocal. But one lens that I'm very excited about is the implantable contact lens. Star Surgical is developing a presbyopic ICL. Uh, this has great potential, especially for uh, refractive lens exchange patients. These are patients in their often later 40s or, or 50s or 60s with crystal clear lenses that rather than take the lens out, we can insert a lens uh, into the sulcus that can refine their distance vision and give them uh, reading vision. In addition, we know that the, uh, the, the ICL is a fantastic sulcus lens and can be used uh, post-cataract surgery to refine a refractive outcome to correct uh, hyperopia, myopia, or cylinder. And so with a presbyopic uh, ICL, theoretically, the millions of patients that are out there that had monofocal lenses or toric lenses, we may be able to offer them this presbyopic option by inserting a lens into the sulcus to one, refine their distance outcome if it's not perfect, and to give them better reading vision. So very, very exciting technology. That's excellent. I can't tell you how many patients come back to me a year, two years later, you know, after we've already perhaps done a YAG capsulotomy that say, Doc, I wish I had gone with that with that, you know, that that nice lens that gives gets you out of reading glasses. So I think that would be a remarkable tool, tool to have. And the ICL is so important to have uh, in our toolkit as refractive surgeons. I'm looking forward to adjustability myself. Uh, you know, we just got the light adjustable lens. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. And down the road, more biomimetic approaches, you know, lenses that actually, you know, simulate uh, uh, accommodation as it naturally happens. But but it seems, it seems to be that the, at least those are a few years away. So, so Ray, in your experience, you know, we, we all want happy patients and we all want patients to know that we care about them um, regardless of what technology they choose. And we know that sometimes the patients that choose technology that, that they have to come out of pocket for, uh, sometimes there's a little bit more handholding that goes on uh, that is necessary. Are, are there any things that you do with your patients to kind of get that buy-in and sort of build that rapport uh, between you and the patient? Uh, yes, I, I want to make sure that I'm available to all my patients. And so on the first day post-op after I examine them, I give every patient, every surgical patient, my card with my personal email and I handwrite my cell phone number down on it. Now, I'm sure most surgeons are, are almost fainting at listening to this. Um, <laughs> but, since I've been, but since I've been doing this over the last year, I get very, very few phone calls. Uh, I just want to make sure if a patient is having some concern and they can't get through uh, to the receptionist or they don't get the message that they want, they have access to me. 
And uh, most of the time, it's either just a quick email that I respond or a text message. And uh, it makes patients very comfortable that they know how they have access to their surgeon. That, that is such an amazing call. Anybody listening to this should should really, really, you know, uh, store that. This this is someone who, you know, does a tremendous volume of surgery, you know, Dr. Stein, and and, and still is giving out the, your, your personal number. I, I do something similar with all my cataract patients. I actually call them on the night of surgery. So after I've operated mm-hmm. that morning, I will go through and personally phone every single one. doesn't matter how many cases I did. I'll call. And it's just, it, I spend probably less than 40 seconds on the phone, but it means mm-hmm. so much to them. Um, and they all comment. And then for my LASIK post-ops, I'll, I'll, I will text them. I'll give them a text message with my, my cell phone directly from me. And you're right. You know, 80% of them don't even text back or they just text back a thumbs up. But just that little bit to show that you care is important because they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, mm-hmm. to kind of finish up, um, you know, I, I thought I'd ask you as a final question, just about talk a little bit about your motivation uh, for correcting presbyopia in the first place. I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at the market here in the United States, it's still relatively flat. And I don't think that enough of our of our cataract surgeons in our country, at least I'm not sure about Canada, but, you know, they don't necessarily think about this uh, in terms of the, not only lifestyle benefits of this disease, but also the safety benefits, all the falls that are attributed to bifocal glasses each year, um, you know, that's, that's not really top of mind for them. And I don't know that they really think of presbyopia as a disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, you, you bring up falls and bifocal or trifocal glasses. And one of the really nice features of this trifocal lens is that patients can hold printed material down below, straight ahead, and up above. So the quality of near vision uh, is, is, is excellent and very large range. Um, the one thing that I've noticed over the years is, uh, especially with this uh, trifocal lens, I get a lot fewer patient complaints when I give them the full range of vision than patients that I do a monofocal lens and they can't see their phone, they can't see their computer, they can't put their makeup on uh, easily. Uh, so really, patients have been really guiding me uh, towards doing more and more trifocal lenses. It's interesting, Colin. I mean, it's so true. I mean, your happiest patients are literally uh, the, the ones that, that choose the best technology, these, these, uh, these presbyopia-correcting IOLs. And when I talk to surgeons, I mention that all the time. It's not Those aren't the ones in my office complaining. It's the ones that didn't choose the presbyopia-correcting IOL. Mm. Now they're having to use, you know, reading glasses and everything like that. So I know how I know that you're a very, very busy guy, um, obviously. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing uh, uh, knowledge you have with this uh, new panoptics lens. Well, thank, thank, thank you very much. I, I hope uh, that uh, surgeons will find this uh, worthwhile and it's an exciting part of practice, uh, mainly because patients are happy. Thank you to Dr. Stein for joining this episode of Off the Grid. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time. Support for Ophthalmology Off the Grid comes from Diamatrix. 
supplying surgeons with innovative products like the X1 iris speculum. Its unique ability to simultaneously capture both iris and capsule makes this device a game changer, providing superior stabilization of the pupil, capsule, and anterior chamber. Visit diamatrix.com, that's D-I-A-M-A-T-R-I-X.com, to learn more or request a sample.